Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I found my calling card. I I was a chef. I worked as an A&R man. I have a record label, but I am born to be a DJ. I never, ever play the same set twice. And for me, it's really important that, um, you know, not only am I playing upfront music, but also classics and also educating the crowd. There is that exchange of energy that really is untangible that happens, you know, in these venues and in clubs. And it's it's magic. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely magic. magic. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a Manchester DJ and artist. I'd always go to the charity shops, the same charity shops every day, get the train from Hazel Grove in Stockport into Manchester City Centre, walk to the studio with my bag of 10 or 15 records and make a tune using those. A DJ known for marathon sets. You can scratch every itch when you're doing all night and you can build it up. And I think it means you can play the appropriate record at the appropriate time. And a tea lover. I just thought it was just nice to offer something that's not booze to people. And also when people walk into a club and just see someone serving tea and cakes, it's like a little bit of an odd thing that people aren't used to. Mr. Scruff, welcome to How to DJ. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks. Welcome to the studio. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, in your studio. Can you describe this place? It's a small square room packed full of old, barely working equipment that I managed to coax noises out of that hopefully people will enjoy listening to. I love the fact that it's underground. Yeah, it's a bit of a cave, but I think the you know the the more soil that's around you, I think the less likely you are to disturb others, which is uh, yeah, which is always a consideration when you're making loud noises. And this gear has been accumulated over what many years? Yeah, some of it I've had since the 1980s, and some of it I've had you know some of it other people have had since the 1980s, and I've I've bought it off them. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, there's, there's a few bits that do work, but most of it is a bit broken and has character, but I think that makes it unique. Is this gear that what you've made all your albums with? Yeah, most of it. Behind me, the old drum machines and stuff like that, that was used for Keep It Unreal. And uh, yeah, the mixing desk is quite new. But um, yeah, you know, a lot of it has, has been with me since I was a teenager. And is that when you first got into DJing? I got into DJing when I was about 12. And that was listening to radio and listening to the Street Sounds Electro series in the early 80s. And hearing mixing and not really realising what it was, 
just thinking it was a way to get more music onto the side of an album by overlapping the tunes and then and then realizing actually this is quite difficult when I tried to do it myself and then yeah so it, it's a strange one I think when you're a kid you 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 just sort of take everything for granted and you don't really analyze it and then after you've lived with it for a bit things just make sense you know because I was doing it all in isolation you know I've, I've I didn't really know anyone who was into the same music as me or DJing. So it was, it was like a, a personal discovery via radio, via magazines, from listening to the Electro albums, realising that I'd stumbled upon a very deep and rich culture that had a long history, both musically and in terms of, 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 the, of the DJ presentation of that music, and then deciding to give it a go myself with no clue and no equipment. But I think that the inventiveness and the time that you have as, you know, a 12-year-old kid, you know, you've got four or five hours a day, you don't have, you don't have rent to pay, you know, apart from having to paper around and, and records to buy. So, yeah, it, it was about just discovering something and giving it a go and taking a very long time to get my head around it, but you've got all the time in the world when you're a kid. What music were you into age 12 then? Well, initially, I was into a lot of pop music, a lot of two-tone, madness especially, but I'd also listen to, you know, I'd listen to Tony Blackburn on the Saturday morning on Radio 1. I'd listen to John Peel. I'd listen to Radio Luxembourg, Robbie Vincent. I remember listening to Ranking Miss P a lot when she was on Radio 1, Andy Peebles, Richard Serling in the early 80s. You'd just listen to anything. I think you'd put on the radio and whatever was on, you'd enjoy and I think the charts were such a a relatively wide representation of what was going down you know watered down versions of what was what people were listening to in different scenes but you'd take that all on but then I'd quite listen happily listen to John Peel because he was on Radio 1 too so I just put Radio 1 on and whether it was Paul Gambaccini or yeah Tony Blackburn or 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 John Peel or Ranky Miss P or who else whoever else was on you just take what the radio was throwing at you. You know, we didn't have a lot of choice in the 80s in terms of radio stations. So you just put the radio on and whatever came out, you got to know. And I think once I started discovering like specialist music via a friend's uncle who had all the electro albums and, you know, so I'd borrow those off him and then start buying them for myself and then start listening to specialist radio shows. And it was just a little wormhole that I fell into and never came out of. And when do you think you sort of first experimented with DJing? When I was 12, and this is tape editing using the family hi-fi, re-editing Top of the Pops, doing mixes using tunes I'd recorded off the radio, you know, then getting two tape recorders. I remember having computer cassette recorders, which were like a little, maybe like a foot long and about eight inches wide, maybe three inches deep. And these were little cassette recordings, recorders. The top half would be a speaker, the bottom half would be the cassette mechanism, and on the top or on the side, you'd have a little speed control. So if you were using, you know, like a ZX Spectrum or a Commodore computer or something like that, you would load the games off a cassette recorder. Yeah. And if you wanted the games to load a bit quicker, you might be able to use a speed, like <laughs> speed up by 2 or 3%, so it'd only take four and a half minutes rather than five minutes to load Manic Miner or one of the 80s computer games. What I would do, I didn't have a mixer, but I would have two tunes that I'd probably tapes off the radio on two separate cassette recorders, and I would mix them using the speakers in the cassette recorder 
and I'd cue using the headphones on the cassette recorders, you know, and and that progressed to using three turntables on three separate hi-fi systems, and I could mix on three decks using, uh, you know, to slow a record down, I put 50p on the needle. I'd have paper slip mats. So basically you, 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 you would watch someone like Chad Jackson on Blue Peter, and he'd have all the techniques and a GLI or a you know a Citronic mixer, or you get hold of an old you know '80s DJ console that may or may not have had you know uh, fixed speed or vary speed decks. And on in those days, the vary speed was about an inch long, a tiny little fader with no markings on it. You know, because this was primarily for you know sort of weddings and and stuff like that. But you you just get hold of equipment. I remember there was a DJ. I used to live in Hazel Grove in Stockport, and there was a DJ centre, um, which was opposite our local park. And I used to annoy them as a fourteen year old. I'd go in every week with one pound fifty, as you know, part payment off a turntable, a belt drive, very speed turntable that was sixty quid. And, you know, they, I don't know how they tolerated me, you know, because this was, this was supposed to be for, you know, serious jocks, as they were called in the 80s, you know, mobile DJs who, you know, could just go in and buy a turntable rather than annoy them with questions about, you know, what does this mixer do? And, you know, can I take the turntable now and pay for it later? You know what I mean? But these these were, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd basically learn your craft with no instruction and no equipment, but you'd find what you had around you to emulate what you imagined the DJs that you heard on the radio were doing. So it's interesting. A, a lot of kids, myself included, would say that music was a huge part of particularly their my teenage years. But for you, I think it was actually specifically DJing. Well, it was, I think it was hearing DJs because all the music that I was hearing and all the music from the different scenes, whether that was reggae, two-tone, ska, electro, early house music, soul, punk, whatever, all this music was being shown to me via, generally via radio and DJs. And a lot of those DJs mixed. So it was, I think it was, it was, uh, there was a lot of musical curiosity there, but there was also a lot of technical curiosity in terms of I want to, I don't just want to own the music and buy the music and support the artists. I want to, do what those DJs are doing by getting all the latest new releases and putting them together in a seamless way that becomes more to me than the sum of the parts. So was the objective at this time, was it to make music or go out and play it? There was, n- there was no ambition to do either. It was just like I wanted to make mixtapes for my friends. From about 86 onwards, I was buying cheap drum machines and synths and I was doing mixes and, you know, I'd, run a drum beat and then I'd mix a tune over the top. This was still using fixed speed decks, but thankfully I could kind of alter the tempo on the drum machine to get that in time. Same again, I was just copying what I heard on the radio. And I think for me, the the transition from going to kind of emulator to kind of, not inventor, but being more creative, was hearing people like Steinsky and Double D, Colcut, and basically these nerdy white guys who were in love with hip-hop culture but were also adding a touch of Monty Python to their mixes. So Colcut were running, you know, they'd take the funky drummer and run a song from the Jungle Book over the top or that kind of thing. And a lot of the early mega mixes because the 80s was the era of the Megamix, so these were very technically tight 
you know, constant mixes. There were always two or three tunes playing at the same time. But in five minutes, you'd have like 50 records, you know, and this was way pre-Serato. People would be making these mixes and then editing them uh, on reel-to-reel. I was copying that on home, you know, home equipment with pause button mixes like every other DJ in the 80s. Um, But it was, then I'd be using that pause button to make loops then I'd be doing my own tunes. But the I was using the same equipment to mix on and edit my mixes that I was doing to make my own music on. And I was hearing Mark the 45 King and going, all right, well, he's just looping that that loop from Leroy Hudson, or he's just looping that bit of, you know, James Brown or Jeannie Reynolds or whoever. I've got that record. Oh, I can see he's just running that over drum machine. So I'd run a drum, you know, I'd just be you know, I'd be getting a, a James Brown record over the top of a drum beat looping it, pulling the record back, getting it in time again, looping it again, manual tape looping. I'll spend all day doing a five-minute loop just to have basically something that you could do in 30 seconds now with a sampler. Were you obsessive, do you think? Yeah, I was very obsessive. And I think it was it, it was, it was obsessive, so like a technical obsession. And it was also like a, an obsession of musical curiosity and wanting to learn and also wanting to kind of have this music which I was hearing on all these specialist shows, which was a real, you know, I I was obsessed with a teenager of having all this new music before it was released because on all the upfront specialist shows and we're talking about people, you know, a lot of pirate radio in Manchester, Stu Allen in Manchester, who was incredibly important, but all these DJs would have the records two months before they came out. So you'd be going to the shop going, I want this record. It's like, no. You've heard it on the radio, haven't you? Everyone's asking us about that. That's not out for two months. So trying to go to the shops where they would sell promos, all that kind of thing. So there was, yeah, there was definitely an element of trying to keep up with all the latest releases because often with a lot of the obscure specialist music, if you didn't buy it the week it was released or the week the promos were in the shop or the day the promos were in the shop, it gone, you know. And remember, I was, you know, I was 13, 14, 15 on five quid a week on a paper round. I wasn't, you know, it's not like I had much choice with record shops. I had my, you know, my local ones. We had a one in Hazel Grove called Grove Records, which was, you know, it was a very small local record shop, but a lot of local DJs went in there. So they sometimes got promos in and that kind of thing. So you, I was in there literally every day you know, looking for new new releases. So, yeah, obsession. So which came first then, Andy? Um, releasing something or getting paid to DJ? The DJ thing, and I was more, because I was doing this in isolation, uh, I'd say from about 84 to about 92, I was just happy mixing in my bedroom and, and doing demos in my bedroom, passing friends, passing tapes to friends, but that was it. In 1988, I sent a hip hop mix to a local DJ, a guy called Waxmaster on, um, it was, yeah, WBLS, which was uh, in Moss Side. And he played, I think, yeah, I remember it was July 1988. He played my mix on the radio. And to me, that was, that was amazing. You know what I mean? It was, it was, so there was little bits of exposure like that, but it wasn't like, oh, right, now I can get myself some gigs. It was just like, oh, that was nice. I got played on the radio. I'll do some more mixes. I used to sell tapes in record shops. There was one that's on Mixcloud that I sold in a shop called Funky Banana in Manchester in 1992, like a hip-hop mix. But same again, that was just like, 
it was a nice thing to do. I wasn't like, right, now I'm going to get myself some gigs. It was, I was just happy with that because I wasn't surround. I didn't know any other DJs, you know what I mean? And then after that, I gave a tape to uh, a good friend of mine called Michael Barnes Winters or Barney. He, a week later, he got me my first gig. He took my demo tape to Rob Gretton at Rob's Records. Two weeks later, I was in the studio. So it was almost like I'd been building up this experience and, and, and stuff. And at the moment, a dynamic person who knew everybody just passed my tape to someone else. I was away. Were you in the studio with Rob? No, no. Basically, I mean, Rob, basically, he was very hands-off. You know, you go for a meeting, you play some demos, and then you just go in the studio and couple of months later you had a record out you know what i mean it was it was it was crazy so what was created then that was uh an ep called the frolic ep which was at the i think it's the end of 1994 and bear in mind like six months prior i'd never had a dj gig i'd never been in the studio apart from a bit of work experience in the late 80s but i think i was ready for it by then because i'd done i've been basically been in isolation you know in my in my bedroom just messing around with music for 10 years by then and I really enjoyed just, you know, starting off with bar gigs and within a, a few months I had three bar gigs a week, you know what I mean? And this was after working in the supermarket for seven or eight years. So even someone giving me 20 quid to play records for five hours was like, yeah, that's brilliant. Is that why you uh, have never shied away from big, long sets? Because it's always going to be better than working in quicksave. Yeah, and I, I quite enjoyed working in quicksave, you know what I mean? It was something, it was a means to an end, you know what I mean? Yeah, it definitely makes you appreciate the value of hard work and what you do and also not moaning about what you do you know what I mean it's you know moaning about a gig or moaning about having to travel somewhere or stay up late it's like no this is brilliant you know what I mean because it's not it's not putting Weetabix on a shelf but um yeah the whole um long set thing I think because I've always played a wide variety of music ever since I was you know you know just starting to DJ and the fact that in the 80s it was normal everybody played all night you know, there was no such thing as guest DJs, really. Most residents played seven hours a night, seven hours, you know, seven days a week. So it wasn't a novelty, you know, it, it, and it, it never has been for me. It's just, it's you can kind of get in, you can scratch every itch when you're doing all night and you can build it up. And I think it means you can play the appropriate record at the appropriate time as well. So you can build it up and every record can kind of hit whatever target it's supposed to hit and it also means you can play very subtle music early on and set the scene and and really kind of if you need, if you need to hold back and tease people or push it and then pull back and i think the whole thing about the push and pull and the kind of the sort of almost like the theatrical element of when people come into a venue and you're sort of waiting for the moment to kind of get the party started on all the work that goes before that and even setting up before you start the night and, you know, knowing the venue staff and all that kind of thing, everything that comes with playing a place regularly and having residencies, I think that you feel part of a team in the venue, you know what I mean? You know the security, you know the, the engineers, you know the bar staff, you know all the regulars. So I think having these places to play week in, week out means that you're also pushing yourself creatively because you can't repeat yourself. DJ! How to DJ! Yeah, so you're getting more and more well-known in the mid-90s. How did the 90s end for you? Well, I think that the main thing for me was like mid-90s was bar gigs 
Then meeting people like Barney, who got me a record deal, meeting people like Mark Ray uh, from Grand Central was very important in giving me opportunities and inspiration. Then signing to Ninja Tune and touring with those guys. So I think over the space of three or four years, it went from bar gigs to doing lots and lots of touring, doing lots of -of out-of-town gigs, releasing albums. So, yeah, it was just very quickly getting used to all that that kind of rhythm of lots of late nights, lots of traveling, lots of record shopping from all the, all that traveling, getting to hang around with other people who were just as obsessive as I was, you know, all the other Ninja Tune artists, you know, like um, MK, who was Roots Maneuvers DJ, Mixmaster Morris, The Herbalizer, DJ Vadim, you know, spending time on the road, you know, touring Australia, touring Europe, touring America, Canada, Japan, you know, five years earlier, I've been in Stockport by myself working in the supermarket. <laughs> so it was just like, it was like a kid in a sweet shop, but it was also like a real, you know, th- there was a lot of experience in terms of gigs, in, in terms of dealing with the rigors of touring, in terms of dealing with technical problems and how you sort of take all those in your stride so you can deal with any of that without any issue, you know what I mean? Because I think in order to, be experienced and then really enjoy what you do you need to have had all the bad experiences quite early on you know dealing with abusive punters or bad sound systems or you know technical nightmares and all this kind of thing and and then once you've got all that under your belt it's like right I know I can anticipate everything that's going to go wrong I can be I can prepare really well and for me at the end of the 90s after after doing all these residencies and all this touring then it was like right I'm going to start my own night which was keep it unreal which was the the launch party for my album of the same name in July 99 and that's when the all night club set started really because up until then I'd been a guest at other people's nights which was great I was playing at reggae nights soul nights house nights jazz nights world music nights and it's like I just want to play all night and get all this music in rather than kind of fitting into someone else's, you know, sort of rule book. From then on, that's kind of what I've done. It was quite a few years after Keep It Unreal that you released your biggest album, Trouser Jazz. Mm -hmm. How did life change when that album came out? Not a lot. I mean, I think Keep It Unreal was the one that really, Keep It Unreal was my second album and that really sort of kick-started stuff, I think, in terms of people knowing who I was and getting bigger gigs by myself and me having the confidence to have my own residency. Because up until when Keep It Unreal came out, I'd be just like, I'd be playing at a club and I just think, well, people just happen to be in the club and I just happen to DJ. And I think the moment I put my name on the flyer and played all night, I was like, wow, people have actually come here to hear me DJ. And that was a real change in my perspective of of almost like, the result of the work that I put in over the last, you know, sort of 15, 20 years. And I think from Trouser Jazz, that just really took it a step further, really, because that was like three years after Keep It Unreal. And, you know, I was playing things like the Forum in London, like, you know, two or three times a year. Big gigs. Yeah, but also I think that, that time, sort of 2002, 2003, when that album came out, the appetite for the kind of music that I loved and made and shared with people in terms of like the jazzier end of the kind of hip hop spectrum, I suppose, 
was very popular at the time. Giles Peterson was playing to massive crowds. This was just pre-Electro Clash, if you see what I mean, sort of when the music got a bit more abrasive. And so students were into jazz in the early 2000s, you know what I mean? So I'd be myself, Giles Peterson, kind of our cohort, Jazz and Over, people like that were playing to massive crowds who were like into whatever we wanted to do. And then a couple of years after that, that kind of didn't implode, but people's tastes changed. And especially with students, I think the musical landscape of what was on offer to them and what they found appealing changed quite dramatically. You know what I mean? So you'd find yourself one year playing for 2,000 people, next year it'd be the same venue and there'd be 700. You'd not done anything different. It's just that in some ways things, you know, just what was popular had moved on. And that, you know, but you see that from doing your thing for a long time. Yeah, well, that's going to come around in 10 years' time. It's going to be kind of a different version of, of, of how it was. But I think it was great. I just love the experience of being able to have, for me, kind of running my own events and having a lot of say on how how that progressed in terms of technically, in terms of, like, I just want to play all night. I want to play for six, seven hours. I want to play whatever music I feel like playing. I want to make it a real joyful exploration of of all these things that I'm into and just improvising, you know what I mean? Making sure I was just very, very technically on it in terms of the, the equipment, the sound system, the visuals, the lights, trying to just be a control freak about the whole thing in advance. So then when you're DJing, it's like pretty much complete freewheeling. It's like, I know my tunes. I know everything technically is completely on point, so I have no excuse to not go there musically, you know what I mean, and take chances and and push it. And for me, that was in the early 2000s with Keep It Unreal and Trouser Jazz and having the responsibility of a residency and then taking that concept of a residency on the road but having that foundation as a backup, like, I know this is possible because I've done it in Manchester month in, month out. So now I'm going to do it in London. Now I'm going to do it in Birmingham. Now I'm going to do it in Scotland. Now I'm going to do it in Cardiff, in Bristol, you know, in France, in Germany. But having that almost like sense of purpose and going, yeah, I have to play the music that I feel that I need to play and having the whole night, there's nowhere to hide. But also you, you can really stretch out and get in the zone because you are there all night. You know, I find like playing for two hours a bit weird and stressful. It's like, where do I go? What do I do? Whereas if I'm playing for eight hours, it's like, great, this is brilliant. I'm completely at home now. And when you're completely at home, you can you can develop it in the way that's appropriate for that event. You know, in the room, in terms of the crowd, you can react to everything in a really easy and flexible way. And and once you once you've played for about an hour and you're completely in the zone it's like right we've got another six hours this is brilliant <laughs> where did the tea thing start the tea thing came from serving tea in the back room of the music box now the music box was has always been a legendary venue in manchester before the music box it was rafters colin curtis played there it was massively important in the jazz funk scene electric chair was there that was its second home after the 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 roadhouse. So I started playing there in 2000 and I was already familiar with the venue because I used to go there for the electric chair nights. I'd done reggae nights there, you know, other people's reggae nights. So normally you'd have the main room, 
which is more kind of banging, and then you'd have more esoteric left field stuff in the back room. But I thought that, you know, I've, I think playing all night, I kind of like to keep the music in one room. And I thought, well, what are we going to do in the back room? So we thought, well, we'll just set up a tea stall because I think, you know, although, you know, I was a drinker, I just thought it's just nice to offer something that's not booze to people. And also when people walk into a club and just see someone serving tea and cakes, it's like a little bit of an odd thing that people aren't used to. It's a completely normal thing at home in your own kitchen, but you go on a night out and see someone with a kettle, the first thing you walk into a club, it's going to at least make you think, what's going on here? And that little disarming people and making them smile, it was, yeah, it was just a little bit of a, a weird, quirky thing that I think people, light was there even if they weren't indulging in tea and loads of people who weren't driving or, you know, who drove or didn't drink or had had a bit too much or just wanted to, you know, moderate their alcohol intake. It's like, yeah, I can get a brew. This is brilliant. So it was just, a, it was a, it was a nice touch that I think people really enjoyed. It was an idea that I had that people accepted and just really, we just kept doing it, you know, for the next 10 years. And then talking about taking what I did on my residency on tour when I was a bit more rock and roll and had a tour bus we'd take the tea shop on tour so whenever I was playing in the UK we'd have a tea stall you know and it was same again you know we just raised money for local you know local causes and charities you know with the income from that tea but it was just it was something nice that no one else was really doing and people appreciated and then started to expect as well. You know what I mean? So it was a, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a nice thing that was fun to do. Before heading into the box of questions, um, you, since Trouser Jazz, mm -hmm. you, I'm going to say, have only released what, four or five albums since then? I think it's been three or four. Okay. Yeah. So not exactly prolific. Yeah. Is that because you wanted to focus more on playing out? I think it's because of the level of obsession that's required to, play many genres of music to a high standard I think you know I'm I'm obsessive and, and continue to be obsessive about things that I don't know about whilst kind of keeping up I've always had this thing about keeping up with new music and learning more about old music and becoming more familiar with what I'm already familiar with and becoming quite familiar with stuff I know nothing about you know I'm 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 uh, just a, a real magpie when it comes to music so I think that level of commitment requires a lot of investment of time and I've DJed a lot and and I also think that in order to DJ a lot and to continue enjoying it you have to treat the craft and the art and and the act of DJing with with an incredible amount of respect which requires a lot of time because people can tell if you're being lazy you know, and I think that's one of the things about having a residency. You keep yourself in check because the regulars know if you're repeating yourself. So for me, I never repeat myself when I'm DJing, which requires such an influx and an amount of time discovering and listening to and learning about new music and, and, and that. And I think it has definitely affected my studio output. I'm starting to do less gigs now and get more time in the studio, which I'm really enjoying. You know, I love just surrounding myself in music, whether it's gigging or or in the studio, it's it's such a a vital thing for me, you know what I mean, in terms of just exploration and playfulness and just kind of whatever, you know, it's something I've got to do. But yeah, definitely the DJing has, 
yeah, you can't do both properly. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, but does this gigs mean that you are now working on a new album? Yeah, I'm definitely working on new music. I'm doing some remixes. I'm I'm working with a Manchester vocalist called Wanda, who's amazing. And she's the opposite of me. She's a fast worker. I'll send her a beat. Two hours later, she sent me back a finished tune. So working with someone with that amount of dedication and energy and work rate has really, been really good for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of warming up, I feel like, in the studio. I'm getting in here every day now. I'm really enjoying it. I'm still working out like a direction and stuff like that. But I enjoy that process of kind of like it's half pushing yourself and then there's there's an element of meditation and, and re- refinement and and that kind of, I think working by yourself as well, it's finding something to push against, whether that's a limitation of limited equipment or whether it's like, right, this is the concept that I'm going with or this is, this is the kind, this is what I'm doing now, you know. But I'm finding like using... A limited palette, setting yourself limits is is uh, I'm finding really useful. Half the time, you're your own worst enemy. You know what I mean? And and for me, it's it's just you know, I waffle when I talk. I spend a lot of time on a tune when I'm in the studio. It's like, how do I talk less? How do I get more done quicker? You know what I love is the fact that uh, the 20th anniversary of Trouser Jazz, the deluxe version of that mm-hmm. album, is coming out. 21 years after yeah, the album was released. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just one more thing. I'm, I'm like the Columbo of music. <laughs> okay, Andy, it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box. Okay. Here. Okay, so all the questions are on 45 sleeves. Okay. You dip in. Okay. This is like a tombola. I've not done this since I've been about nine. Okay, there we go. All right, thank you. Okay, your first question is, what's your best ever performance? Oh, my best ever performance. Um, I don't like choosing bests because I think, I don't know, I, I, it's always like I, treat, I take my DJing so seriously that I very rarely have a bad gig. I'd say one that I really, really enjoyed, one that always sticks in my memory, is playing at uh, WOMAD at Mount Taranaki in New Zealand in what felt to me at the time, coming from Manchester, as like a tropical storm. It basically rained heavily for three hours and everybody stayed and it was a mud bath and once you realize that people aren't going to run away because it's raining and the freedom which well i think once people submit to the weather and just get down yeah it was it was just you know a a beautiful part of the world i love new zealand anyway Uh, we were there for a, a week before i think the whole experience that that surrounds a gig especially when you're traveling and you're you know, you realise how fortunate you are to be here at this moment. And I've played so many amazing gigs in so many, you know, beautiful parts of the world. But that for me was just quite spectacular because normally it's like, well, everything's against me here. You know, there's practically everything except lightning. Normally people would just leave and go back to their tents or whatever and, and no one's moved. This is brilliant. And I've just played really exuberant, celebratory music from all over the world because it was WOMAD. You know, I just, you know, prior to that, I just seen Femi Kuti live on the main stage, you know what I mean? So it was just like everybody was there. I think they were just appreciating this amazing lineup that I was very fortunate enough to be part of. And it was just, we were all absolutely soaked and no one cared. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. Amazing. Back into the box for question two. Ooh, dip okay. in. 
putting my hand in someone else's record box is like going through someone else's sock drawer. It feels a bit dirty. But there you go. Here's record number two. All right. And your second question then is, have you ever been recognised in an unlikely place? Not really. I normally get like I normally get recognised in familiar environments. So, you know, at festivals or in record shops or that kind of thing. Occasionally, like in the school playground, say for you know picking my daughter up and stuff. But yeah, or maybe in shops, stuff like that. I think once in once I was in our local fishmonger. And there was a guy who said, oh, you're Mr. Scruff, aren't you? And and, and, and just proceeded, proceeded to repeat the word fish over and over to me. And I was a bit like, you know, you know when you've heard a joke a lot, but, you know, someone's excited. But, yeah, that was that was a bit weird, but in a kind of really awkward way. I asked you about where the tea thing started. Where did the fish thing start? The fish thing started from, I think I, I buy a lot of spoken word records. And going back to my admiration for people like, you know, some of the 80s DJs like Colcourt and Steinsky, they were using a lot of spoken word in a hip-hop context. And obviously, you know, hip-hop's always been one for that in terms of basically taking snatches of of, of words and using and recontextualising them. And... I was collecting a lot of spoken word and just from virtue of what I found in local charity shops, I was finding a lot of records that were about fishing, songs about fish, little seven inches with recipes about, you know, fish recipes on, stuff like that, you know, a Ribena flexi disc about dolphins. So you end up getting this random collection, you know, via the filter of other people's record collections in charity shops. And you know, I was just, what I used to do was go to um, a studio in town before I had my own studio, a guy called Phil Kirby, who was the drummer in Yargo. I still work with him now. And I'd basically go in with a bag of whatever records I'd bought on the way to the studio that morning. It was my little ritual. I'd always go to the charity shops, the same charity shops every day, get the train from Hazel Grove in Stockport into Manchester City Centre, walk to the studio with my bag of 10 or 15 records and make a tune using those. So I just had a load of spoken word records. It's like, all right, well, three of these are about water or the fish or, you know. So it, it was more like just what, you know, it, what was in my bag on the day, me being silly as well, you know, because a lot of my humour comes out in music. And I think it was just like, it could have been about anything. Like, you know, it could have been about potatoes, about, I don't know, horses. It just happened to be about fish because of what I found in the charity shop. All right, Andy, back into the box for okay. question three, dip in. Question number three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know if you're going to love or hate this question. Mm-hmm. What's the best ever use of a sample? And you've got to answer the question. The best ever use of a sample yeah, that's a really, really difficult question. It might be that you would give a different answer if I asked you the same question tomorrow, say. Or the yeah, no, day. no, definitely. And I, I think it's one of those where it's like a bit like choose your favourite tune. It's whatever, you know, it has to be your first answer, which is often the most, off, uh, the honest one. Mm. I think the first thing I've thought of is Public Enemy, Rebel Without a Pause. And obviously there's more than one sample in there. Um, the main samples, uh, the grunt by the JBs, the, the sort of sax squeal from the intro of that tune. And I just, I'm referring to that just because of how that record hit me. And that was released in 1987. 
And I remember hearing it on the radio and just like, I've never heard anything like this because I knew what sampling was by that time. And I think, you know, what was different about Public Enemy compared to a lot of the other people who were using samples, whether you're talking about Trevor Horn or Marley Marl or Paul C or, you know, with the ultramagnetics or... Um, you know, a lot of the the samples were either quite short and clipped, or were were like quite decorative. And Public Enemy, it was almost like you could tell these were DJs who were just shoving a load of stuff together. It was just like a wall of noise, and it was so over the top. But the arrangement in that record is so beautiful as well, with the, um, you know, the 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 transformer scratch with the funky drummer, which Public Enemy used, seemed to use at that point in time on every single record, but no one cared because it was so kind of heavy. The little guitar break in there with Flavor Flav shouting over the top, it was so obnoxious, but also so well put together. And a lot of jet de music on Def Jam at that time was very confrontational. You listen to stuff like I'm Bad by, uh, you know, LL Cool J. Same again, it had almost like a similar intro with the um, theme from SWAT, you know, uh, and, you know, obviously Rick Rubin's production and the 808 kick drums, but it was, it was raw. It was very in your face, like rock music, you know what I mean? But for me, that hearing all those samples at once, but the forefront of that being just this obnoxious atonal horn riff, from the grunt by the JBs on uh, Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. That to me was, it still is perfection. What a perfect answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Got there in the end. Indeed. Uh, back in for question four into the box, please. Question number Thank four. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay. Where are you happiest? In the studio, in a club or at a festival? I think wherever I am doing the thing I love, is where I'm happiest. I mean, you know, I I love the solitude of the studio and being able to talk to myself without people frowning at me and just experimenting and getting my hand, head around stuff in at my own pace. I love that. That's a kind of working out, which I think is a very it's essential thing for me, you know what I mean? But for me, the gig thing, the way it makes me feel and behave it's like you're doing this thing now at this time with these people um i love that pressure i love the way it makes me prepare and i love the way i feel when i'm prepared and the obligation and you know the kind of mutual contract that you enter into with a group of people when you're you're sharing music with them in public but i think so I love every aspect. I love the solo gigs. I love festivals because you are connecting with the rest of your community. We Out Here is a particular highlight for me because it's the best of everything. And all the artists, with the exception of a few who have big touring bands and, you know, people to pay, everyone's there for the whole thing. And, you know, the artists are on the dance floor. Everybody's there because of a recognition that it's such a special occasion, you know what I mean? For, and it's a, it's almost like everybody goes there to connect and energise for the year ahead. And for me, 
as as someone who who loves to kind of celebrate and share music but also experience other people doing the same thing it's for me it's a real yeah it's a point where all the stuff that everybody's doing all comes together in this kind of crazy focus because everybody come coming from their own scenes and reconnecting with people that they know but also coming to experience stuff that they've heard about and want to know more more about and i think the the that comes from programming which for me putting a good festival together and there's no it's no coincidence that we out here is put together by very experienced dj but you you it's like you're djing with acts so seeing that level of of curation and putting people on and trusting them to do their thing and fit in with everything else that's going on. And there are so many collaborations and, and relationships and friendships that are developed or explored or instigated at that festival. So for me, yeah, it's everything. Studio, you know, I'm here in the studio now. You know, in an hour, I'm going to have my head in the mixing desk, experimenting and being in a world of my own. And I'm going to love that. That you know the headspace of of DJing and the headspace of creating in the studio when you let everything else go is a very similar experience and i think and i think once you once you reach that place and you have to work to get to that place but i think once you're there and the things you do once you're there kind of how it pushes you as a person as and as a creator i think that's what keeps you interested and obsessed in in whatever you do Amazing answer. Uh, a last question from the box now, Andy. Dip in for a last time. <laughs> this, this re- before I go on, this record box. I know it's not yours originally, but being a child of the eighties, this kind of flimsy cardboard thing of beauty. I actually bought my first record box in 1986 from Squires Disco Centre, which was in Salford, very close to where the BBC now is in Manchester. This. You know, all DJs had boxes like this in the '80s, and and to see, uh, you know, a, a fairly intact uh, example of of this, <laughs> yeah. just listen to it rapidly. You, you can hear it flex, and you know, this is this is yeah, this 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 '80s relic yeah. of 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 a record box is a thing of beauty because mine doesn't have a lid anymore. I've still kept it, my 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 first record box from from the mid '80s, um, but this is uh, yeah, this this. It takes me back to when I were a lad. <laughs> when it was all fields. Here's question number five. All right, Andy. So, in a sentence, what is the art of DJing? The art of DJing is, I think, is sharing your idea of what music is with other people who are interested. Yeah, there's, there, are, there are so many aspects to it, but I think in terms of, and I could sum it up in 20 different ways, you know what I mean? I think it's, it's getting your point across, but in a conversational way. It's, it's connecting with people and it's connecting, it's finding a communal feeling using, it, it's, it's merging the technical and the creative to find or work on a feeling that you can all experience at the same time. Great answer. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me in your underground bunker. That's all right. Hopefully, um, apologies for all the dust and fluff, but that's uh, that's uh, that's carpet for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have one final question for okay. you. Okay. 
it's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. Mm -hmm. What would they be? Oh, now this is the kind of question I'm really bad at. Normally I'll start talking straight away and go on for hours. This, these kind of questions, I'm quiet for about three minutes. I might go in reverse order. I would say the final one needs to be, because I'd liken this to like the end of a night when you DJ. And I'm always really, really careful about what I play for the last three tunes. I think it's really important to work your way up to a crescendo. So I'd say the last one would probably be One Step Beyond by Madness. which I think in terms of energy and just a kind of like an argy-bargy knees up, you know what I mean? It, it's still the, the, the way that they kind of did over Prince Buster and just took it to another level, you know what I mean? And in terms of rowdiness, I think that would... I can't think of anything else to, to end it with. The preceding two records before the end of the world ends... <laughs> something joyful yeah something joyful uh, I'm just going to go for anthems and I'd say Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Inner Life let's go for cover versions I think that's another that's such a joyful cover version I think in, in terms of Disco Perfection and Jocelyn Brown and an incredible arrangement. And on a similar one, late 70s, America, Disco. I'm just going for perfection here, but uh, Sylvester, over and over. cannot think of a more perfect record, to be honest. I think the joy and the energy and the life in that tune, the arrangements, everything is just like, I never get sick of hearing it. And I think, you know, if you're going to play three tunes and that's the last one, things that anyone's ever going to hear, you can't be nerdy about it. It's got to be classics. And I think, you know, over and over for me will consistently be in the top three, just in terms of like, yeah, it can't really get any better. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> uh, Andy, Mr. Scruff, thank you so much. Thank you. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>